I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and 1 Chronicles chapter 20. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that David, King David, was good in battle, but bad in love. Verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drink. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? 
Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, here's that infamous story of David and Bathsheba. Her husband fought in Israel's army, but was not a naturally born Hebrew. He was a Hittite married to a Jewish woman. Do you suppose David discounted the importance of Uriah's life because he was not Jewish by blood? Well, anyway, why isn't David out there fighting his own battles? Israel's at war. David did a bad, bad thing here, adultery, and then complicated by conspiracy to commit murder. Verses 4 and 5 would indicate that this wasn't even a casual meeting that just escalated out of control. David saw Bathsheba bathing, immediately sent for her, spent intimate time with her, and then sent her back home. For a big-time king, these actions might have been no big deal had Israel not been a nation under Jehovah. But God expects more from his people. The timetable for action was expedited by the pregnancy of Bathsheba as a result of David's selfish extramarital activities, like he didn't already have enough female attention. Well, all's well that ends well, right? <laughs> no, wrong. Well, then there's Uriah. What had to have made David feel like a dirty, rotten dog here is the dedication to God, his country, and his king demonstrated by the proselyted Uriah on his visit to Jerusalem from the battlefield which, by the way, was per David's command. While David is trying to orchestrate a cover story for his adultery by compelling Uriah to go spend a night with Bathsheba, Uriah is completely uncooperative. Look at verse 11. It says, And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David made a second attempt, this time with the assistance of an overindulgence of alcohol. But again, it fails to cause Uriah to seek out and spend quality time with his wife Bathsheba. To David, now the solution is simple. Uriah, he's got to die. David sends Uriah back to General Joab with a note commanding Joab to tend to Uriah's death in battle. Well, clueless Uriah, he's carrying his own death sentence in his hand. Joab, with orders to make certain Uriah dies in battle from the king of Israel himself, he makes a battle move which had proved fatal in previous Israeli battles. We see that in verse 21, notably Abimelech's death in Judges chapter 9, verses 50 through 53. In that battle, the infamous Abimelech got too close to the city wall in battle, and a woman dropped a millstone on his head. Joab apparently calculates that a similar fate will follow if he sends Uriah to fight near the wall. 
You'll notice that Joab didn't follow David's plan exactly. David's written order to Joab is seen in verse 15, which says, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Wow, now that's cold. But instead, Joab sends Uriah to fight with other valiant men next to the city wall, and some of those men are killed as well. Joab's plan actually resulted in the calculated deaths of others besides Uriah. Only David and Joab know the treachery that had caused their deaths. Oh, and by the way, David and Joab had even worked out a code, so to speak, for relaying Uriah's death from Joab to David without raising the messenger's suspicions. It was a carefully devised cover-up. It was deceit all the way around. Incidentally, you can see why Joab had so much influence in David's life. Even though David would like to have been rid of Joab, Joab knew where all the skeletons of David were, so to speak. Ultimately, that was Joab's undoing with David's deathbed decree, and that decree was that Joab be executed by his son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. And finally, in verse 27, David makes an honest woman of Bathsheba when he marries her immediately after the death of her husband, a war hero in battle. To friends and family, David taking care of Uriah's widow must have seemed like a very noble deed on David's part. Isn't that just ironic? But then in chapter 12, we have some bad news because the prophet Nathan shows up. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me." and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, 
The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Well, sometimes God's prophets can be a pain, you know what I mean? you got to admire Nathan's boldness in confronting David the way he does here. Men had died for a lot less at the hand of David. Hey, David! I have a disgusting story for you. Well, David's all ears. Nathan tells a story. It's an allegory, which apparently David thinks is true. It's about a rich man and a poor man, a poor man with only one little sheep to his name. David was really into this rich man rips off the poor man story. When he cries out, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Nathan makes the mother of all king bashing statements when he replies, you are the man. Then Nathan gets ugly with his prophecy concerning the future implication of David's sin. Here's the clincher. The baby of David and Bathsheba will die. After his death, David makes a statement of reassurance to Bathsheba concerning eternal life when he says in verse 23, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Well, why must David's son die? Well, there's your answer in verse 14. It says, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. The enemies of the Lord, well, they mustn't see God's children prosper in their disobedience. It's worth noting that David still holds out the hope that God would spare his son for seven days, even after Nathan's prophecy that his son would die. Notice verse 16. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. However, after the child dies, David readily accepts the reality. David doesn't blame Nathan for the consequences of his own sin. As a matter of fact, Nathan continues to hold a place of prominence in the reign of David. He even takes part in the inauguration of King Solomon later on. As we analyze God's methods as best we can, A principle seems to emerge here. God does not let the overt disobedience of his children go unnoticed. He chastises disobedience. Hey, but 
But didn't David say he was sorry? Why did the child then have to die? Well, here's the deal. When a Christian disobeys God, chastisement from God is to be expected. But what if one repents of his wrongdoing? Doesn't that wipe the slate clean? Well, yes, of course, God forgives our sin, according to 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, the consequence of that sin is not necessarily erased. Maybe so, maybe not. Though David cried out in sorrow and repented of his evil deed, the prophecy of Nathan regarding the death of his child, well, that proceeded nonetheless. There's a powerful lesson here on the strength of an unconditional covenant in this account. At this point in time, David functioned under the provisions of the covenant that God had made with him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-16. through 16. We refer to those promises made to David in that passage as the Davidic covenant. You can look at the article that I've written on that under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. In those promises, we see that God had provided that David's throne would last forever. David was given a cornerstone role in the future of Israel that would extend all the way into eternity. And those promises were given unconditionally by God. Now, many people have trouble understanding the nature of an unconditional covenant. Here it is, when God makes an unconditional covenant with man... That means that God will keep his promise based only upon God's faithfulness. The man's faithfulness with whom God made the covenant, well, that's not a factor. Indisputably, David was not faithful to God in this instance, but it didn't invalidate the promise that God had previously made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-16. through 16. That's the Davidic covenant. By the way, God's promise of salvation to believers, well, that's another unconditional covenant. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death into life. That's just one of many passages in the New Testament where we see the strength of an unconditional covenant with regard to salvation. God never changes his mind on an unconditional covenant. As in David's case, God did not let his sin go without dealing with it. That's where the biblical concept of chastisement comes into play. Now, if you'd like to know more about chastisement, how God deals with disobedient believers, then look at my notes on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 17. So, as we continue in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel... What good can come from the marriage of David and Bathsheba then? Well, verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So who was King Solomon's mama? That's right, Bathsheba. God forgave David and gave him the next king of Israel through his wife Bathsheba. However, David's sin was not without future consequences, as I mentioned, chastisement from God. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, Nathan prophesied from God that there'd be some future consequences that would follow David as a result of his sin. Let's take a look at those, shall we? First of all, Nathan told David, he said, The sword shall never depart from your house. 
And that starts with the rape of David's daughter by her half-brother Amnon in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1-22. through 22. But it doesn't stop there. It continues as David flees his own city of Jerusalem for fear of his son Absalom. And that takes on until Absalom's death in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Then he says, secondly, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Absalom, his son, flees Jerusalem after executing the death of his half-brother Amnon in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 23 through 39. Then he says, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. In an attempted overthrow, David's own son Absalom takes David's wives in 2 Samuel chapter 16 in plain sight of all Israel. And then finally he says, I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. Absalom's attempted coup that was viewed by by everybody. As specified earlier, here's an important addition to the principle regarding forgiveness from God. And here it is, 1 John 1, 9. It says, with regard to believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, however, does not preclude future consequences as a result of that sin. David suffered chastisement at the hand of God for his sinful act of adultery and murder, but God never, never, never rescinded the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant. As a matter of fact, that covenant was valid before, during, and after David's sin. David knew the consequences of his sin that would follow. Nathan had carefully outlined those consequences. Nevertheless, David writes a heart-wrenching Psalm 51 in the aftermath of Nathan's prophecy. Even though David had his faults, he was a man after God's own heart. That was first mentioned even before David was king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 to 31, and 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we see that David takes the Ammonite prize. 2 Samuel 12, beginning with verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it should be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brick works. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now let's look at the way it was told to the exiles in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon, and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. Then David took their king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it. And it was set on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks, and with axes. 
So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Hey, uh, what about the capital of the Ammonite kingdom, Rabbah? Well, Joab, he's on it. This finishes off the Ammonites. They're slaves of Israel now. This battle and the subsequent capture of Rabbah, a land of the Ammonites, just gets three verses in First Chronicles. Now, David stays behind in Jerusalem until Joab sends for him to come try on the big crown. It was a crown that was more for show than for daily wearing. I mean, it weighed 75 pounds. Imagine that on your head. In the Chronicles rendition, Ezra sticks to the battle results instead of dealing with the whole Bathsheba episode. He skips that. Now, according to the text of the King James Version, these Ammonites were subsequently executed, uh, apparently in the fashion of cruelty to which the Ammonites were accustomed to inflicting on others, which is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1-15. through However, due to the varied usages of the Hebrew prepositions used in verse 31, it may be that these Ammonites were rather put to forced labor than executed, as is indicated in the text of the New King James Version. And we finish up today's reading with another war with the Philistines recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4. Now it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushathite killed Sippai, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. Again there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jer killed Lammai, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again there was war at Goth, where there was a man of great stature with twenty-four fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Goth, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Well, those Philistines had some big kids. Must have been something in their water. This guy, Sippi, had four extra appendages, two extra toes and two extra fingers. We read about him also in Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 20. He's related to Goliath. David and his men take care of them, though. It's worth noting that Ezra skips the whole David-Absalom crisis that occupies the chapters in Second Samuel from chapter 13 all the way down to chapter 20. That's why there's an eight-chapter gap in 2 Samuel that occurs between 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3, and verse 4. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.